Um, new rule. If you're one of those voters who claims to be a Christian, maybe you could be more Christ-like. Um, new rule. If you went bankrupt running a small casino, maybe we shouldn't trust you to run the world's largest economy. <laughs> um, new rule. If marriage is a sacrament, then how can you explain Donald and Melania Trump? Um, new rule. If you want to avoid accusations of Russian collusion, maybe you shouldn't have married a woman who sounds like a 60s Bond villain. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Uh, Bill Maher. Hi, guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is our biggest get yet. No, no. B- it- Bill, uh, <laughs> so, so folks out there say you're uh, a bit of a stoner. I hope I'm not telling tales out of school. <laughs> no, guys, it's your friend, Luke Savage, here as always with my co-host, Will. And, you know, we were... After the many, you know, pains and kind of the rigors of agony we've gone through in making the show, you know, tonight we decided to watch something that, like, sometimes you just, you know, you just want your politics served kind of straight up, you know, things you agree with. And so we settled into (laughs) something that I I think it's safe to say we both thoroughly enjoyed and, you know, we had a great time with. We laughed a lot, but we also learned something. Boy, this sure was an episode where uh, pain and pleasure mingles because, (laughs) I mean, if I am going to watch not just any Bill Maher comedy special, but a 2018 Bill Maher special (laughs) live from Oklahoma, that's what it was called, right? Yeah, that's right. The only possible way I think I could get through it is in this context. You, me, sitting here. Yeah, you know, Michael and us nation. Literally at midnight. (laughs) (laughs) This one is one of those ones where, like, sometimes we... We end up having a few drinks, and then, I don't know, it's kind of a mistake because it deflates us or the thing is too long. This is one that probably could have benefited from, <laughs> from you know, knocking back a few. One thing I'll say, though, is this was less boring than most of the things we watch for this podcast because it really is a, a kaleidoscopic view of this crazy world we live in. Now. Oh, it's incredible because it's so, as you said, like, all of this stuff could have just been cribbed from Twitter in the last week. Yeah. Like, it just... All the sort of names and, you know, little events and stuff. Like, they if you look at all here. the uh, hashtag resistance comedy accounts, these yeah. are all the jokes. The, it was like, it was like a sort of uh, baby boomer bingo, this. Like, it had, it had all the received wisdom that you'd, you know, you'd find at your favorite uh, Twitter accounts, like, you know, resistance mom 79 or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But, okay. <laughs> so we've had dumbass presidents, but we never had one like this who was so you know, aggressively stupid, right? You know, takes pride that you cannot get information into his head. We don't know how, actually, he gets information, although it's entirely possible Sean Hannity blows it directly up his ass. But really, he takes pride. No matter how many times you tell him things, he will insist like the stealth bomber is literally invisible. Or (laughs) there's such a thing as clean coal. Or, you know, global warming is a hoax because it snows in the winter. (laughs) It's like saying the sun isn't real because last night it got dark. Bill Maher is an old favorite of ours. We talked about his uh, eye-opening film, Religulous. 
Luke, you wrote one of the definitive takedowns on Bill Maher in Jacobin. And I was interested in looking at Bill Maher's Hot Off the Press's new comedy special because there's been a lot of talk about Hannah Gadsby's new Netflix special, Nanette, where... You know, there's there's been a, a lot of response to it, a lot of praise talking about it testing the limits of, of comedy because it's a special where sort of the first half of it is a comedy special. And then in the second half, it stops being comedy and it becomes kind of a deconstruction of the form of comedy. And, uh, you know, some have derisively said it turns into sort of a TED talk. But it, but she talks about how comedy is too limiting a form for her to express her trauma and you know moreover comedy is often an arena in which people like her feel erased or underrepresented my first reaction to it was kind of a a knee-jerk antipathy because initially hearing about it it kind of struck me as possibly disrespectful to the great potential of the form of comedy like to say that there are certain topics that are cannot sufficiently be expressed in comedy i think is not true and, and in fact, I think it's really just an admission of defeat or it's a way to rationalize your own artistic failure to say that uh, you can't express certain ideas or emotions through comedy. That said, I was scrolling through the other Netflix comedy specials that are currently available, and it's all things like, you know, Ricky Gervais's Twitter War and yeah. uh, Dana da- Carvey, da- Dana-, Dana Carvey doing his George H. W. Bush impression, and uh, oh, you mean from my favorite movie, Master of Disguise? That, that's right. And uh, da- I only want the Turtle Guy impression. And Dave Chappelle asking why he needs to know what trans people are, and lots of stuff like that. Right. And so it's all like it's all. And I've been watching a fair amount this week of our favorite show, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, starring uh, Jer- one of, Jerome one, Seinfeld. One of our one of our big inspirations for Michael and us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm Jerry Seinfeld. You're uh, Kevin Nealon or whoever the guest is. And there's an episode of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee that is absolutely mind-boggling with with tracy morgan it really is dog shit isn't it it's terrible (laughs) the tracy morgan episode i swear seinfeld just steamrolls over him there's a part where he's talking about how and you know another thing i don't want to go after the younger generation but what don't read your blog on stage to me or then there's a a, an absolutely there's an absolutely exquisite 15 second moment when him and tracy morgan are at a diner and the waitress comes up and she says what her name is. And Seinfeld goes, what's that name? Why are they, do they keep inventing new names? And then the the waitress says, okay, if you, know, if you have any questions, just let me know. And then after she goes, Seinfeld says, what questions could we possibly have? <laughs> so, you know, I think in a world like this, you know, where these are, these are the dinosaurs right, who where are the, still dominating comedy. Yeah, where kind of the, the schema of, of comedy runs from like aging rich guy driving around in luxury cars and kind of just like bullying service workers mm. to pedantic guys that start way too many sentences with actually or whatever and have you know, weird obsessions with trans people and are completely animated by, you know, like there's no, there's no like raw material of humor left anymore. It's just Mm. half a dozen people of my like 10 million Twitter followers didn't like a joke I told. Here's like, and free speech is under attack 
because I get to rant about this in the Netflix special I made 3.6 million off of. Yeah, seriously, like the two topics that these guys keep returning like, to this over has... and over again are uh, political correctness is run amok, right. you can't make jokes about anything, and what's the deal with trans people? Right. I, now, I'm not transphobic, don't right. get me wrong, but right. uh, what's why do I have to know what they are? Yeah, Th- yeah. That, that's all it is. So in this world... Yeah, I think uh, Hannah Gadsby's Nanette could, can exist. That's well, and, the conclusion I've come to. And I mean, between, it's like, what would you rather have? Like, like so, something that, I mean, again, like, I haven't seen it, but, like, assuming the complaints about it are valid, like, so, what would you rather have? Something that is maybe overly didactic within kind of the form of comedy that, that maybe you don't find particularly funny, but, like, is making real observations, or mm-hmm. Jerry Seinfeld bullying a waitress. I think I know which one I would choose. And these guys, you know, Seinfeld, Chappelle, Ricky Gervais, they all talk as if they're the real free thinkers. They're iconoclasts by expressing these ideas that What's going on on college campuses? Uh, oh my god. I mean, this, I mean, we'll get into it, but more, but like, this Bill Maher special had all of it. Like, in some cases, he would say something that was so heavy handed, you know, he'd like bring up, um, so colleges or whatever, and you'd be like, well, he's not going to do the obvious bit, right? There's something else here. Oh, it's he like, always nope. does the obvious it's like, bit. Here it, here it comes. Yeah, so I thought it would be fun to watch this new Bill Maher special because, you know, we talked about the Ricky Gervais special, but Bill Maher is the living embodiment of a certain kind of comic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is all of the worst tendencies of comedy in one mm-hmm. man. Yeah. And I, and I thought, man, Bill Maher doing a comedy special in 2018, this, this will be fun. And, yeah. and boy, was it ever <laughs> like it was about 50%. Yeah. As you said, hot off the presses, just uh, written in the last tw- few days, Twitter, I mean, tro- yeah, seriously, and the like, last and few like days. made on a kind of assembly line. Like the, the credits informed us at the end that, you know, the, sh- the show was written and performed by uh, one Mr. William Marr and also who also lent his um, executive production mm-hmm. chops to the, to the affair. But like this could have just been written by like committee or something. Yeah. And the second half could have come from his first special. It's all the lame stuff about now, you know, a marriage. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's stuff uh, that stuff that that you would have heard at I don't know a sort of roast at the local church in like 1983. I can't believe you know I was so scared Mitt Romney was going to be president. I gave Obama a million bucks. I would gladly give Romney a million dollars tomorrow if he would take over America. I swear to God, I would sleep like a baby. I will become a Mormon. How about that? I will. Maybe we can get into the meat of what some of these jokes are. Uh, Luke and I, you know, made some notes while we were watching the special. (laughs) Early Bill Maher, when he's talking about a Trump rally, he says, Fact checkers are being carried out on stretchers, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) And what I like about that is the ladies and gentlemen at the end, because he knows that fact checkers are being carried out on stretchers isn't good enough on its own he knows that rhythmically it has to have a couple more words at the end to just qualify as a joke so he put ladies and gentlemen or there was a, another one this is an example of the resistance twitter bent of his special he thinks global warming isn't real because it snows it's like saying the sun isn't real because at night it gets dark <laughs> the moment i knew we'd made the right decision to watch this was about 90 seconds in when he told some joke that was like, um, so we're in Oklahoma, your uh, governor uh, has warned against the legalization of marijuana on the grounds that it could encourage recreational use. Evocative pause. 
We're very much hoping so. Woo! That's great because, like, that's the first two-thirds of the joke. Like, really, that we're hoping so should be kind of the fulcrum on which the punchline is going to be balanced. But there's no punchline. Yeah, well, because the punchline, the the problem with all of Bill Maher's joke construction is that the punchline is the first thing that he says. Like, it's too early. Yeah. It's like he takes a shot at something, but, you know, he overshoots it and he has to kind of, he has to kind of double back. And then the double back, as you said, perfectly imitates the structure of comedy, but the momentum is gone. And like, also the whole time he's spoon feeding his audience. It's such a slap in the face when he like, you have already gotten the joke and then he has to browbeat you with what the joke is. Well, there's one joke in particular. Melania is the good kind of immigrant. The kind who does the jobs Americans don't want to do. Joke done. Everyone's applauding. Everyone is laughing. Mm -hmm. We know what he's saying. And then he says, like blowing and fucking Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another thing that he does, which is also kind of a pacing handicap, is he keeps laughing at his own jokes. All the, every single joke. So sometimes he, he can't actually like mobilize the vocabulary, you know, or like, I don't know, the jaw muscle strength to kind of finish a joke. So he just kind of trails off into the, and then, (laughs) well, sometimes he laughs at his own joke. Sometimes he laughs at like how outrageous he's being like, oh, can you believe I'm getting away with this? Sometimes I amuse even myself, ladies and gentlemen. Sometimes he's laughing just at the state of this world that we're uh-huh. in where I'm like oh give me a break you know what else he does a lot <laughs> putting his fist on his waist you know yeah. uh, Un- you know unbuttoning his bottom two buttons of his of his jacket yeah unbuttoning the buttons because he's getting down to the dirty business of That's joke right. telling you know he's <laughs> it's a it's a dirty business folks but someone's got to do it yeah he's always kind of like kind of thrusting out his pelvis <laughs> a little bit like standing really tall you know five foot two he's got a and... got a got a towering <laughs> alpha stance on him this guy now you've uh, you know, we may have said this on mic before, but you've met Bill Maher. I have uh, <laughs> met Mr. Bill Maher. It was in the. It was a long time ago. In the context of you, you were like you went to see Religious, right? Well, I was. I was, like, I was it. at the school newspaper that we both worked for, the Varsity. Uh, I covered the Toronto Film Festival one year, and one of the films at that prestigious festival was religious. Mm-hmm. I was at a round table interview with Bill Maher and uh, Larry <laughs> Charles. And I actually did muster the courage to voice my criticism of the film. This was still in Will's arch Catholic phase and he found it very <laughs> <Yeah>. offensive. <laughs> Bill Maher was like, how could Jesus be the father and the son? And that was just more than you could handle. <laughs> I said, sir, how dare you, <laughs> sir? I objected to that scene where uh, he was debating the guy who plays Jesus at a theme park. I remember Larry Charles was saying about, well, you know, actually, uh, you know, when you watch that scene, I I thought he made some very good points. Uh, You know, there was that part where he talked about how... Uh, the Holy Trinity. It's like if if water is uh, can can be water or ice or mist, mm-hmm. and then and then I think I got really nervous and impatient, and I went. It's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel, and, oh, and right. then and then Larry Larry tries to say it's not though, it's not. And then I remember that Bill Maher said to me, you know, I keep hearing from all these people who say that you can be sensibly religious <laughs> oh and, my God. and and i just don't understand it if you're an adult and you believe these things you're a rube that was my meeting with bill Maher. i mean okay just let's talk about that for a second so forget people that believe in god or whatever right imagine being someone who's committed their life like as bill Maher has 
to doing what you just described like literally 15,000 times. Yeah. Like imagine the press tour he did for that film. Yeah. And the number of times he said a version of that to yeah. like a little cloistered gathering of journalists or mm-hmm. something. I think I know which one is more debased, frankly. And I can tell you that in real life, Bill Maher is very short. He has a huge head and his hair in real life looks kind of like if you've seen the movie Super Mario Brothers, Dennis Hopper's hair in that film as King Koopa. I actually haven't seen it. Oh, you should. It's great. Um, That is what Bill Maher's hair looks like. A little bit of Hollywood insider gossip for our listeners. Well, that's what this show's really about. So, I mean, you know, we've got all these, we got all these very bad, uh, we've got all these bad jokes. Um, I, I feel like we should probably recount one or two more of the bad jokes before we talk about the political stuff. One of my favorite ones, just because of like how utterly banal it was, <laughs> is the one where he said, um, in Trump's first press conference, he said, I am me. Evocative pause. I am me. Thanks, Tarzan. <laughs> Tarzan. Because, I mean, what the fuck is that? And then he followed what? it up with a joke about Melania's <laughs> accent. Oh, yeah. That was yeah, pretty yeah. bad, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, because Vilmar, he's politically incorrect. That's right. There was another great joke where he said, we've had presidents who didn't know much. Reagan in his last year thought a coat rack was Barbara Stanwyck. <laughs> and I mean, even Bill knew that reference was a little dated. So he made a bit of a joke about that. But still, that doesn't excuse telling that joke. <laughs> It's like, yeah, Bill Mara is the kind of person who calls things the bee's knees and, like, it's sort of a joke, but not really. Start your week with Rhea Perlman, Harlan Ellison, Star Parker, and Fivish Fingal. Who cares what they talk about? I want to know how they got those names. Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. The bad humor aside, we've really beat that to death. The show, as Will was saying, is kind of mostly, you know, just kind of these milk toast like, things you'd see, just things you've already seen on Twitter, like, forms of things you've recognized. He's but like, like a take aggregator. Yeah, and, and actually that is something that I think is sort of the key to understanding Bill Maher a little bit. Well, that's part of my, my like, the metaphysics of Bill Maher. We'll talk about that <laughs> a little later. But um, the kinds of observations are things like him saying, you know, I would kill for a boring president. Just bore me to death. You know, so that's one. And yeah, the the general kind of structure is, you know, there's a very particularly Maher-esque both sidesism, I guess you could call it, mm-hmm. where, you know, he has a go at the, 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 the Republicans for, for being, uh, I don't know, for being stupid mainly. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the thing. Trump um, wouldn't want to alienate his base by reading. Yeah, that's an actual joke. Joke. Um, <laughs> and, but then what he likes to do is he kind of pivots to that thing that is very, it's a very specific kind of thing that you find in like, dare I say it, male pundits of this of this age, yeah. you know? Because Bill Maher, as we all know, his show is called Politically Incorrect, right? Yeah. Um, and so he has these takes about how like the reason the Democrats lost the election was because of political correctness. That's kind of his observation. This is his take on the, it's like, you know, liberals should own the first amendment the way that, you know, conservatives own the second or whatever. Free speech zones. Uh, you mean America? I think for me, the absolute nadir of the special is when he's talking about uh, the Muslim ban. And he says, you Unbelievable. know, the Muslim ban's a stupid idea, even for Trump. But what is the liberal response to this? To just yell Islamophobia if you criticize the religion? And that's not the liberal response who, to the Muslim who ban. Who responded to the Muslim ban with this like straw man thing that he's saying? I mean, I think the response to the Muslim ban was pretty straightforward. And it was like, the idea of banning people from Muslim majority countries, like precluding the possibility of them entering the United States, 
is transparently racist. And if Bill Maher disagrees with that assessment, he can fight me. He he Seriously. is racist if he, he is, disagrees with and, that. And Bill Maher is racist. Yeah. We'll talk some more about <laughs> that. But like, on record now, Bill Maher is a racist. And, you know, like all comedians of his genre, he talks about safe spaces and trigger warnings. And there's one part where he talks about, did you know there was a college that canceled a staging of the vagina monologues because it was offensive to people without vaginas? (laughs) And I hate this so much because this is something that they always do. These guys, they find the most obscure college free speech kerfuffle. And and as I said, like nine times out of 10, when you look into these things, either it's, you know, these kind of like ridiculous, like they're, you know, Oberlin, people at Oberlin College, you know, some people were like, stop serving sushi because it's culturally, you know, appropriate or whatever. Like that does happen. But, you know, nine times out of ten when you look into these things, it's either they're just totally misrepresenting what are actually legitimate concerns or it's an issue like so trivial that it doesn't matter. Mm. You know, and they always represent it as if it's this great, terrifying threat. And then this gets equated somehow with the actual assaults on free speech right. that, that are happening every day around us. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And his material involving the trans community, I think, is uh, abominable, pro- prob- problematic to say the it's, least. It's really bad. I mean, uh, somebody like Marr obviously thinks the take on, on the, the election that it's like, you know, oh, like the Dem- Democrats lost, be- you know, oh, you think you can win on pronouns in the Midwest or whatever. Like for him, that's just a little little bit of freewheeling jocularity, right? But it's like implicitly it's like don't blame trans people for hillary clinton's loss yeah okay that's what that's, he's doing that's malice that's mm-hmm. malevolent mm-hmm. and you should be ashamed of yourself for doing that i forget exactly how he f- phrased the joke but it was something like let's focus more on you know whatever whatever and less on uh whether or not you can pee next to me in a bathroom I- i'm sorry if i'm misrepresenting his beautiful joke right but... well then he then he riffs on that and he's like not that i care i'm not whatever and so as you like replied to him while we were watching, it was like his framing of it was, I don't care, you know, what your gender is, but like, stop, you know, demanding that your interests be represented in election. Yeah. Like, stop. Yeah. You know, stop making me acknowledge your existence yeah. because it's very uncomfortable <laughs> to me. Just go exist in the shadows somewhere and don't go in a bathroom. Don't have any political demands. Don't like, don't insist that your identity be granted like a modicum of respect in yeah. public. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because that's just political correctness. <laughs> I I would like to just briefly address maybe the second half of this special, which mostly has to do with... Well, this is the really good I mean, classic Marian uh, material about how uh, (laughs) he has no problem with marriage, but uh, boy, it sure seems like all the men he knows who are married are miserable. And (laughs) my God, why? I don't want to have a kid. I mean, have you ever seen a kid? Uh, All the parents I see, they've always got colds and sicknesses from their kids. I like the bit bit about children because he actually strayed somewhat from just the like hack, be comedian kind of act into stuff that sounded quite sociopathic. (laughs) Seriously, like... When he's talking about marriage and he's talking about sex and he's talking about children, he seems incapable of understanding the concept of love. And I find that very disturbing. It's like, why would anybody get married? Why would anybody have a, have a kid? Why would anybody have anything but joyless transactional sex with an endless parade of anonymous partners? Yeah. Uh, and I feel a bit bad for him, frankly. <laughs> the, the sex jokes, it's like, 
So lame. his posture is that he is that he it's like, OK, folks, this is the dirty part of the show. Get ready. Yeah. And then like a lot of them are, are jokes about how like he has this whole soliloquy about how he, he's not into all the gross stuff folks you know yeah he's like he back to the basics oh the not related to sex probably i think the hackiest part of the show was in the bit about children where he starts talking about like when i was a child it's like you know seat belts were hard to come by it's like i yeah. love my leave it to beaver upbringing and it's like this is not even keeping this together at all as like a comedy special this is like your extremely out of it grandpa after like a, you know a bloody mary on a thanksgiving dinner yeah talking like, about how the kids today are so calm yeah when when i was a when i was a kid we used to have the big christmas lights what happened to them? <laughs> yeah kids are too coddled and you know safe spaces and stuff it's not like me back in the day when you know my my parents would just beat me and and <laughs> i used to have to walk to school downhill both ways in bare yeah. feet and you know he brings sex into it too because he's talking about and what's the deal with with porn on your phone i mean back in my day you would just have to imagine it all and that's what turned me into the man i am today which is horrifying frankly i mean if this is what turned him into the man he is today then give every kid a pornhub subscription i don't want to hear about bill maher's normie kink okay you know when he you mentioned him talking about sex and and as he said he's not into the gross stuff and and how um, uh, you know, by his own admission, rather unimaginative he is. He talks about anal sex briefly, because of course he does. And he talks about it with such revulsion. And this is a guy who so much of his image is built around being this like rather libertine guy. Yeah, transgressive. You know, the guy who was at the Playboy Mansion every week for, mm. you know, 500 decades <laughs> in a row. And he is so disgusted by the body. Yeah. You know, like the actual mechanic, like anything except, you know, the most antiseptic kind of sex is <laughs> abhorrent to him. I, I think it's a, just an interesting glimpse into the psychology of this man. No need to expound further on yeah. that. Um, so believe it or not, I actually got a an email this week from a reader who was responding to the Bill Maher article that I wrote, which came out fall of 2017. And, you know, I, you know, I'm not going to name names. I don't, I don't want to beat up on this, on this fellow since he was, uh, to his credit, very polite. Although, as I told him in my response, I really do disagree with his assessment <laughs> of Bill Maher. And, um, and I'm just also beyond that, I'm just sort of flabbergasted by it. And I'd like to talk about, I'm going to read it to you, but I, uh, I want to talk about the different senses of humor that exist today, the different currents of humor and the kind of political sensibilities they embody, because I think we don't find Bill Maher funny at all. Uh, speak um, for yourself, but pal. It is interesting to think about why, you know, why people might find him funny. So this was the email. I enjoyed your essay on Bill Maher. Thank you to the staff who did that Googling to dig up all those jokes and new rules commentary he's made since the 90s. Burn. That's the staff at Jacobin Magazine. <laughs> who, there's a whole team assisting me. Standing starkly alone and out of context, they sound deplorable. At the time, however, I probably laughed at every one of them, and I have no shame. Bill is a comedian, an entertainer, and a showman. A keep showman? In, keep, <laughs> keep in mind... What, what is his showmanship exactly? <laughs> well, listen, Will, he's going to tell us. Okay. Uh, keep in mind, all comics have a shtick. Don Rickles, Joan Rivers, all your favorites. Oh, yeah, all the Rodney comics. Danger <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield all got us to laugh via their shticks. Bill approaches comedy as a weed-loving liberal ticked off that political correctness has gone to the extreme. It hinders not only the right to tell jokes that the quote-unquote snowflakes among us, the, I, it's actually literally in quotation marks, 
It hinders not only the right to tell jokes that the snowflakes among us find the least bit offensive, but also splits the Democratic Party into the sane liberals and the liberal purists. Bill believes, as do I, the purists siphon votes from the sane candidate and the other oh, side God. wins. In 2016, 78,000 votes scattered in three states resulted in our current president, despite Hillary Clinton's three million popular vote victory. If the snowflakes, purists, and sane liberals don't come together by 2020, we are doomed, says Bill in his acerbic, offensive, humorous commentaries and jokes, it's a stand-up comedy act. The other side controls the Senate, Congress, the Supreme Court, and the White House. All we have is a free press. Hollywood, with its left-of-center movie and TV content, and Bill Maher. It's not a fair fight. Give him a break. So I just that want... last paragraph has some some true points in it. I gotta say, I di- I disagree. Um, that, no, no, that that is all we have is uh, stand-up comedy. <laughs> they have everything else. <laughs> he's right. I'm um, sorry, but not he's not right in the sense that he that he. He's means not it. right in the right but, spirit. But I, no. I wanna I wanna before before we have a have a go at this this email. I mean, I just want to say so. I emailed him back politely, and he sent me a polite reply. So as so as, the purist and the sensible liberal came together. As in listeners this case. as listeners will know, I'm. Big big fan of bipartisanship and rational dialogue. <laughs> so I appreciated this. I think this email uh, with respect to the gentleman is a useful way of talking about some of the disagreements you and I might have with the enterprise of Bill Maher and disagreements we might have with the people who enjoy him. So for example, the fact that in kind of the second last paragraph here, like he gives this very specific political comment, which is wrong, but we don't need to get into that about like vote totals and like, Whatever, and then having done this, he's he then says it's a stand-up comedy act. Right. So this is weighty and important, and so you shouldn't criticize it when it's offensive mm-hmm. because then you're being a snowflake. But also, it's ju- you know just chill out. It's a yeah. stand-up comedy. Re- like, and I and also I, it's our last line of defense yeah. in the rise against yeah. the rise of fascism. That's right. Yeah. Um. So I think that is a bit of an inconsistent position to have on this. But look, the big problem with this is I think that there's so I mean, clearly, this guy finds Bill Maher funny. And I mean, I think I think we've pretty well established that neither of us finds Bill Maher funny. In fact, I find him aggressively unfunny. Like, I think that in the same way that Andy Borowitz, a lot of people think his headlines are hilarious. I just to me, it is actually less than comedy. Like yeah. there's a net loss. My state of amusement goes into the negative when yeah. I read like yeah. an Andy Borowitz headline that's something like, you know, Kim Jong-un asked Donald Trump, what's your secret? Or whatever, yeah. you know, like <laughs> yeah. whatever the whatever yeah. the thing is. So he's not funny. And I'm very confused as to why people think he's funny. I think part of it has to do with, I mean, in addition to the fact that he kind of tells people what they want to hear in a joke-like form, there's something about his posture on stage This particular kind of comedian, this smug, overconfident white guy, truth teller, seemed particularly popular in the 80s. Yeah. And there's something about it. Most successful comedians, I think, have a certain humility to them. Mm -hmm. Most comedians are self-deprecating in some sense because the audience has to relate to them. And most comedians, they don't want the audience to feel intimidated by them. They have to be approachable in some way. But Bill Maher postures as like either the cool older brother or the, the, or the ri- try-hard uncle or the try-hard <laughs> uncle or just but just like the sensible smart guy who knows a lot about politics and he's doing you a favor in a way he's validating you by by saying hey listen we all know what the truth is right you you and me the smart guy the in group we're the smart guys mm-hmm. look at me I'm smart I'm in mm-hmm. yeah. 
And and you think that people like that because they actually it kind of helps them feel included. In yeah, the, I think it flatters them somehow. Right, um, which is not in and of itself like a flattering or a good you know constructive reason to like Bill Maher, is it? No, no, no. no. <laughs> so I think, and this may be covering territory that we've trodden on in the in the previous Bill Maher episode, but um, you know this whole idea that Bill Maher is transgressive, so. I mean, his politics are those of, you know, a Democratic Party voter of a, of a certain age who's like, I have some gay friends, but they're going a bit too far with this trans stuff, you know, mm-hmm. or, oh, yeah, I support me too, but, you know, not if it goes too far, yeah. you know, it's just, it's not transgressive at all. It's always just like the most middle of the road take. But I mean, a big part of what, you know, is supposed to make Bill Maher politically incorrect and transgressive, and I think the the phrase is imp- phraseology is important. Politically incorrect. So mm-hmm. there's supposed to be some truth that's being revealed here. There's supposed to be some invisible barrier that's being broken down. And if you look at a lot of the things that have gotten Bill Maher in trouble, it's hard to see where there's any kind of political content at all, right? Like back in 2001, he had to apologize after doing a segment where, you know, the crux of the quote-unquote joke was him comparing dogs to, quote, retarded children. Uh, And he said, they're sweet, they're loving, they're kind, but they don't mentally advance at all. And it's like, what is being revealed there? Like, people are offended, but don't take the offense for, like, validation of the, you know, the weightiness of that, because there's no weightiness to it at all. Or um, he ranted in back in 2011 about how, you know, civilization begins with civilizing the men, talk to women who've ever dated an Arab man, the results are not good. I mean, that's just racism. There's nothing that's being kind of revealed there. There's a part in the new special where he, he just offhandedly says... Uh, oh, uh, by the way, get used to gigs, all right? Uh, th- those long-term jobs, they're not coming back. Oh, I love that. And yeah. and it's not a joke or anything. He's saying that as if we should just suck it up. We should. The rest of it is about how like we should make it easier to fire people, especially like those flight attendants. It's just like saying what the horrible, shitty, dystopian reality we live in is and saying, you got a problem with that? Yeah, <laughs> we should have more of it. Well, and, you know, um, I love uh, people sort of had to, had to go at me for pulling this quote out. Uh, and maybe I read it last time, but I don't care. I'm going to read it again, if so. Because I think it is kind of a key to understanding, you know, sort of where his politics come from. It's from this 1999 interview. Um, and this is back when Bill Maher was kind of more happy to associate himself with the Republican Party. And, you know, just speculating, maybe that had something to do with the fact there was a Democrat in the White House at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was this was the more transgressive position. It was a little bit punk rock to be, you know, maybe just a little into Bob Dole or whatever. But so he said, uh, he described himself as a libertarian. And he said, I'm a libertarian. That's the line I've always used. I would be a Republican if they would, which means I like the Barry Goldwater Republican Party, even the Reagan Republican Party. I want a mean old man to watch my money. I don't want a Republican to be funny. I don't want him to be charming because government is a sieve that takes as much money as it can and gives it away, usually needlessly. I am for freedom, a waning cause in this country. The GOP, which used to be the party of freedom and getting government off our backs, is now quite the opposite. Lee. So since then, he's he's gone on to describe himself as a 9-11 liberal now. And he's, you know, he's given millions of dollars to like the Democratic Party, like Obama's super PACs and stuff. You know, these these grotesque astroturf things that <laughs> exist for people like Bill Maher to pretend they're doing charity by, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, basically paying like, the, the, you know, those, those kind of donations. It's like a, an extra feudal tax you pay as part of the landed gentry who like, you know, works for one king and not another. But before people have a go at me for saying, oh, his politics have changed, 
Here's what he said after he'd kind of briefly made a few nice noises about Bernie Sanders. This is what he said a few months later about Bernie Sanders' politics. Tell me this is any different from that 1999 quote I just read. Look, no one is arguing that millennials haven't gotten a rotten deal in this economy, but they've also gotten used to getting shit for free. If you're a millennial, you may never have known the concept of paying for things that all of us used to pay for. I'm a baby boomer. I think the natural order of things is to pay for the music that I like. To do less than that doesn't make you revolutionary. It makes you a person who goes to the bathroom when the check comes. But wait, there's more. So he called called the Sanders program Santaism because I guess like wanting to not face crippling debt to get an education is the same as like wanting not have to pay for a Hoobastank city yeah. or something. But then he goes on and he went into full red baiting and he said the reason that young people liked Bernie Sanders was because, quote unquote, they simply don't remember the Soviet Union because the only time they've ever had to crouch under a desk was to go down on their teacher. So the new generation is ready for socialism. Problem is they may be ready for a little too much socialism. Ugh. So I mean, this is God like full blown reactionary crap. Like, don't pretend this is transgressive. This is your grandpa who's like, I would have voted for Reagan three times, you know? Mm. It's the shit you'd hear from the member of your family at Thanksgiving that it's a chore to even be in the same room as them. Don't pretend this is, like, transgressive. It's not. But he smokes pot. (laughs) And he has premarital sex. (laughs) I should also mention that his old favorite target religion comes in for, you know, another uh, another another kick in the can. And it it was quite nostalgic to hear there was one point when he was talking about, you know, the enforced family separation at the border. And he talked about how various Republican administration people were quoting the Bible to justify it. And he was using this as an example of how religion is a poisonous thing. But really, doesn't this just point to the limits of his particular brand of atheism? Because all it goes to show is that how little religion really matters, that it's just this thing that can be trotted out and and used to justify anything. Right. And people use it, like people mobilize around progressive causes with religion too, so... And I think getting to the root of it, the biggest problem with his worldview is that he doesn't quite recognize that the dystopia is here. Right. There's a part that's also absolutely horrible where he's talking about Mike Pence and he says all the things that Mike Pence believes. He says, but Mike Pence isn't advocating for a fascist dictatorship. Mike Pence is within the normal boundaries of Republican awfulness. (laughs) And if you think that's true, you think there's no because Mike Pence would be running that detention camp. Yeah with or without trump and he'd be running it with greater logistical competence too yeah he would he would running it better mike pence wouldn't have put you know that mural of the american flag and donald trump's face Mm -hmm. at the front of it that caused so much outrage Mm -hmm. and this is the problem with bill maher the biggest criticism of society he has is religion and prudes Mm -hmm. i also enjoyed his take on bernie sanders which so bernie sanders pretty cowardly i thought well it's you know it's kind of interesting because it's a very flat take like it didn't have the kind of reactionary edge of you know in the quote that i i just read but it was the patronizing take that you've kind of seen recently you know some liberals trot out over alexandria ocasio-cortez right Mm. where it's kind of like 
Uh, like you saw the clip of the Pod Save America guys being like, the lessons we've learned, it's like you run a positive campaign. You run on what you believe in. You yeah. know? So his take on Bernie Sanders is the joke is just Bernie Sanders is a frumpy old man. Haha. He's like that guy who is working in the office that has the leak in the ceiling. Yeah. You know, like pretty, pretty really tame. Stuff. But then, you know, his take on why people like Bernie Sanders, it's his authenticity. Yeah. And moments before that, he said, you know, um, you know, I liked Hillary Clinton but some people didn't it's like you gotta have a vision you gotta have whatever and then you know it's it's striking that so then talks about bernie who you know think it's pretty safe to say did have a vision but he never gets to that like okay so what is the vision the vision is um you make it harder to unionize and you you trash political correctness and you're okay with trans people provided that they don't um provided they know their place provided they yeah provided they don't talk too much or make any political demands and that's how you get the right number of electoral votes folks like that is that that's really what he's talking about because there's not even the slightest like he's unable to even acknowledge or just verbalize the idea that like Bernie Sanders ran on like inequality, poverty, the you know, the fact that the United States is an oligarchy with like faintly democratic characteristics. He doesn't bring yeah. up any of that. I kind of was waiting for him to say something like that quote you just said or to do a more full-throated denunciation. He's too of much of the... a chicken because yeah. also the audience, yeah. as soon as he brought up Bernie Sanders, they all cheered. Yeah. Um, Which is, by the way, that's how you get the right number of electoral votes because <laughs> you get the kind of people that would go see a Bill Maher special and then also all the people who don't fucking vote. That's how you win. I just want to say, when I took the SATs, I don't know if they still have this question, kids, but there was a section called Choose the Best Answer. And there was never an answer that fit perfectly because they were trying to teach us something. Sometimes in life, there isn't a perfect answer. You choose the best answer. So when people say Mike Pence would be worse, I implore you to reconsider that. Mike Pence is the kind of loathsome Christian hypocrite that if I didn't hate religion already, I would start. (laughs) But, But Mike Pence is not trying to become a dictator. Mike Pence does not talk about locking up journalists and political opponents. He can name all three branches of governments. He is, win the nor- he is within the normal parameters of Republican awful. So I want to just give you my kind of theory of Bill Maher, because I think that there's actually another layer to be explored here, which kind of comes through, you know, in many of the things we've talked about and quoted from the special. Because actually nailing down Bill Maher on any specific politics, like I think, you know, we've done a lot of, you know, he's like your uncle at Thanksgiving dinner or whatever. And That's kind of true, but there's something else going on here, and I tried to get at this in my article, which is that, you know, I really think somebody like Marr, he is just a product of cable TV. And cable TV exists to sort of serve a market audience, and, like, the audience is its market. And so the role of the entertainer in that context is certainly not to have, like, a coherent politics. I don't really think Bill Maher does i don't think he really has very strong ideological convictions really um what he does is he kind of just aggregates things like it's it's the take economy he's Mm -hmm. a juggler of different takes and the reason he's so successful is because you know he's good at kind of gaming the exact median point of where his audience is at um and that's what the kind of both sidesism is about Mm. and if the kind of 
cultural and political centers of gravity in the country shifted really strongly either way, he would just adjust accordingly. Mm -hmm. And it would be the same thing. Like, if the United States were to become, like, you know, a fascist hellscape, if that were to happen, I know for a fact cable news will just still roll on and it will all just be totally normal and Mm -hmm. whatever. You know, Bill Maher would still exist in that context and he would sound exactly the same and he would just go on blissfully unaware of like just how bad things had, had gotten. He'd be in the same kind of bo- both sidesism at just the goalposts would have shifted. That's my theory of Bill Maher. Like he's to be understood as somebody who has figured out how to game the normal ideological bifurcation that occurs in like a polarized country by figuring out how to how to kind of harvest it's like a little bit of Fox News and a little bit of MSNBC. It's the perfect mm. cocktail. Yeah, you had a theory that he's the personification of everything wrong with both political parties. I think, yeah, I think because of what he's doing, yeah. I really think he is the perfect creature. You know, I'm just cribbing from my own article now, but he's the perfect creature for like a media ecosystem where half of the cable news audience, their modus operandi, their kind of animating energy is cultural resentment. And the other half of the audience, it's kind of smugness and smarm and outright sort of metropolitan condescension towards the lower orders. Mm -hmm. Like he typifies like just the worst elements of like both parties. So he's perfect for cable well, TV. I think he's actually o- a genius. I think you overlook his principled stance in favor of the legalization of marijuana. So just a a little business at the end, and then I want to talk about a recent article of yours. We launched the Patreon last week, as uh, the show's hardcore fans will know. Been a great uh, reception to it, and uh, if you haven't checked it out yet, there's a little teaser on the SoundCloud, on the podcast app. Uh, You can listen to... uh, couple minutes of us kind of talking about star wars the last jedi and we'll um, have a brand new episode on the patreon next week yeah so we we hope uh, if you haven't signed up already you enjoy the show you want more of it give us your money sign up at the al gore level uh john Kasich and general wesley clark levels to come and you don't get to call yourself a member of michael and us nation if you don't sign up yeah so, if you so if you think s- about that if sleep you sleep s- on that <laughs> Uh, if you sign up, you know, Patreon gives you a little option to to kind of, you know, share that you've signed up. This is the part of the show that we hate doing because uh, we've yet to fully embrace our role as small business owners. <laughs> um, but let people know. Uh, tell your friends about it if, if you enjoy the show. Support uh, Irony Michael Moore podcasting. It's, uh, it's the most important vanguard of the resistance. We were having a fun conversation before this recording about how I'm going to give Luke a T4 at the end of the year. And it's like, <laughs> it, it's real. It's, yeah, yeah. Also, sincere thanks to everyone who signed up yeah we, we know, really we, we know it's your hard-earned money and we hope to prove ourselves worthy of it yeah yeah we really appreciate it guys mm-hmm. thanks so uh will i want to talk about an article of yours that i guess dropped yesterday that's right in yeah. uh in harper's so it's it's a big byline you wrote about doug ford and the issues around the sex ed curriculum here in ontario which has been a really big political football but the the kind of angle of the article that i liked the most was you kind of used you used it as a jumping off point to talk about you know one of my favorite themes which is kind of the the way that canada and kind of the idiom of canada functions you know, within the, you know, the media ecosystem of the United States and, mm. and kind of how this, you know, maybe this is old, this is old hat if you're listening to the show, but kind of how this idea of Canada the, as this kind of humane, progressive utopia 
is so present in the American liberal imagination, going right back to patron saint of the show, Michael Moore. Well, something that I know that we both loved was that article in The New Yorker from two or three weeks ago by Adam Gopnik, where it was right after that incident at the G7, where Donald Trump was sort of bullying Justin Trudeau, uh, apparently to make Kim Jong-un impressed. Wasn't that the the conspiracy theory that was going around? And and then Justin Trudeau, you know, wasn't going to take it anymore. And he gave a firmly worded press conference when he said that this would not abide. And Gopnik took this as an opportunity to expound upon how, you know, the Canada's, uh, you know, sensible, uh, commonsensical... Co- and- common sense civilization. He That's had this right. whole anthropological take on why... Yeah. On, on, like, why something about, like, sort of the deep cultural structure of Canada made Justin Trudeau, like, defiantly stand up to Yeah, because we, we, can't, we can't take bullies. I think it has something to do with our skull size, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> You know, th- this is a country that had the residential school system, yeah. okay? And it's and the residential school system is still something that we barely talk about. Yeah. This horrific... There are people alive who lived through it. The last residential school closed in 1996. There are There's a whole generation of people alive who lived through it. Uh, this was the, the school system that... It's very much like what's happening in the U.S. at the border. Uh, abducted. Well, it's, it's worse. It, yeah, it is worse. Yeah, far it, uh, worse. Uh, abducted generations of indigenous children from their parents and forcibly enrolled them in these schools. And and explicitly, according to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that concluded a few years ago, this was this was a program, an intentional program of cultural genocide. Yeah, they would not be allowed to speak their language. Yeah. They would not be allowed to learn about mm. their culture. And, you know... It, this is a founding institution of the country. Needless to say, unfortunately, it led... To, there was so much, uh, not just psychological abuse, but sexual abuse. Yeah. You know, like it was it was a, an epidemic of sexual abuse at these places. Yeah, and, and, and more than that, so there is a section of the right-wing commentariat in this country that gets bylines in the National Post... Mm-hmm. That, you know, every time there is a piece of residential school related news, you can count these guys to they'll roll out the takes about how it's actually not that bad. And like, or it had good intentions. It had good it intentions was all about or whatever. Civilizing so people. and that's not even that's not even the past. That's now there are people that will be given bylines in like print newspapers that will defend these things. Well, the idea that it was good intentions... That's our commonplace civilization. It's so ridiculous because it's not like these people after they graduated were going to actually be allowed into society. They were not going to be allowed to integrate. No, it was All it was was a genocide. It's racial apartheid with like genocide tacked on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whenever there are these takes about Canada's kind of, you know, deep common sense or whatever it really is appalling and as you pointed out i mean we just elected doug ford you know if canada is a a nice and abiding place uh you know what that also means is that it's a place that just doesn't want to rock the boat you know right like it doesn't want to talk about these things right and and i mean i think too with i mean just going back to the you know so the, the the g20 incident i mean justin trudeau basically he dug into what all of the domestic political pressure was asking him to, which is like, don't make concessions to Donald Trump on trade. There's actually just a very banal political explanation. Mm -hmm. You don't need some like amateur, like anthropology about, you know, the, the nation and its soul or whatever. It's just not, it's, and like Gopnik wasn't the only person who wrote a column like that. There was a whole wave of Canadian columnists writing in, in, um, you know, like the U S press and stuff about like, here's why, like, 
Trudeau couldn't be bullied by Trump oh, or whatever. Painful. I don't. I don't understand that. I I kind of understand it. I mean, when you have a guy like Donald Trump as the president, it's it's people will take any victory. J- Justin Trudeau looks very good next to somebody like Donald Trump. But so another thing you talked about in the article, what I actually thought the article was um, the the sex ed curriculum and its kind of role in the election that we just had is actually a pretty complicated issue, and I thought you gave it a, a pretty nuanced treatment. So can you talk about kind of what what the argument was there well the sex ed curriculum which is one of the signature legislative achievements of the ontario liberal party in its last term and really one of their most commendable achievements it was the first comprehensive update of the public school system sex ed curriculum since 1998 and you know in 1998 uh, there was no such thing as google uh, th- that curriculum had nothing about consent it predated same-sex marriage you know nothing about sexting it was a curriculum that was misrepresented in many ways by our burgeoning i guess far-right media ecosystem but also just by the sort of traditional like the the christian right and yeah stuff. yeah and doug ford was someone uh his brother rob uh, was very good at kind of walking this tricky social conservative line in toronto a lot of dog whistle politics doug very... a lot of like i can't go to pride because uh oh i look at that i'm going to my family's cottage this weekend yeah and doug campaigned a lot with this guy charles mcvetty who is a, a very uh, high profile far right christian evangelical leader it was an issue that he used very much to narrowly win the progressive conservative nomination and then didn't use a lot during the actual general election campaign because you know in the past tim hudak in 2011 i believe actually did run on sex ed and he lost yeah partly because of Mm -hmm. it i mean maybe i'm oversimplifying that election but it was a pretty major part of the reason that he lost and you know for for a while i think there was kind of an open question about was this was this just something that he was kind of cynically using to get the nomination? Is he actually going to follow through on it? And this week he followed through on it. The schools are going to revert back to the 1998 curriculum. Yeah, I mean, it's it's worse than, you know, it's worse than we could have possibly imagined. Yeah, um, his first two weeks have really been something. Yeah, I mean, it's it does have that quality of kind of just the blundering malice of it. Mm-hmm. Like a whole campaign that was about uh, ostensibly, you know, finding efficiencies and like, cutting government spending and like cutting all these things is going to end up costing so much money there's gonna be all these cancellation fees for these environmental initiatives are getting rid of and it's like it's really just because they don't want like conservatism is not in any sense about like finding efficiencies or like the deficit or whatever Mm -hmm. and it's never been it's just it's about uh it's about a systematic blundering attack on just like a handful of things that are like you know, have a softly positive influence, like, you know, incentives for, you know, cleaner cars or what, you know, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. these like small achievements of like, liberal democracy that, you know, are often the result of kind of like, civil society groups and activists Mm -hmm. applying pressure, you know, but they're just a little bit annoying, but they're just a little bit annoying when you just want to you just want to drive your gas guzzler, and you don't Mm want to have to pay the like, you know, $60 a year, extra fee or whatever. Doug Ford was very mad about the NDP's idea to have a, like a, what was it, a 1% tax on Mm -hmm. luxury vehicles? Because, you know, people are sick of getting nickeled and dimed, we know, when they buy a Lexus or whatever. Painful. Man of the people. Now watch this drive. Dun, 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 dun,
chicks. I am not a chick. I'm an ethno-historian with a doctorate in cultural anthropology. Got that? Yes, Doctor. And one hell of a guy. Ah! Ah! In search of a cannibal tribe. I want to make contact with piranha women. It's a story of... Smart women, stupid, insensitive men. ...of tender romance. Dr. Hunt and I are old friends, aren't we, Margot? Well... We were in love once. Desperately and passionately in love. <laughs> it was a one-night stand. I was half drunk and left right after we had sex. It's an adventure <laughs> of thrilling danger. What was that? Something went under the boat. Something big. Oh, my God. It's charging at the boat. <laughs> it's a land of primitive customs. Hey, sexy mama. Hey, you want to ride my vet? I have a lot of fantasies about being tied up and spanked. Because this is no ordinary jungle. This is a war. A war between men and women. This is where civilization ends. This is not the Disneyland jungle boat ride. There are a thousand piranha women in this temple. And I bet you your terrific cook something around here smells fabulous. I want meat. Is it one of those beef substitutes? You want to eat me, don't you? Have they told you how great you look in that dress? Because that, see, it's feminine and feminist. <laughs> Shannon Tweed, star of Hot Dog, the movie, and Steel Justice. Adrian Barbeau, star of Escape from New York and Swamp Thing. Cannibal women in the avocado jungle of death.